Welcome to Porch Stories. I'm Mallory Gibson. I'm Larry Hakey. And I'm Billy Bailey. For this episode, we interviewed Dr. Greg Wasilkoff, a retired professor of archaeology from the University of South Alabama. He discusses Creek history from contact to the Creek War, primarily focusing on trades between Creeks and Europeans. Dr. Wasilkoff, can you let us know a little bit about who you are and your history? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you for having me here today. Um, I'm a retired professor from the University of South Alabama and have uh, lived in Alabama since 1979 and during much of that time while at Auburn University at first and then South Alabama. I've uh, worked on the archaeology and history of the Creek Indians, so I've gotten to, to learn all kinds of fascinating uh, bits of your history and glad to share them. Okay, and um, what brought you, what interests you in the Creek culture? Um, well, initially, uh, I, thinking back on it, I, I knew about the Creeks, I think, very early on from Disney and you know, various other kinds of Hollywood productions, which yeah. I'm sure were totally inaccurate. But, uh, you know, they, they, the, the Southeastern Indians in general were always kind of in the back of my mind as a, as a fascinating people. And, and so when I moved to Alabama, uh, I came to Auburn to work, actually, with John Cottier, the archaeologist there, who uh, was very interested in studying the lower Tallapoosa Valley, kind of the heartland of the Creek people at, back in the 18th century and before. So, uh, so that was my introduction to it. Okay. And so, you're an archaeologist, right? And that's what, right. What attracted you to that field of anthropology? Oh, archaeology. Well, I, I, again, I can't really trace it back exactly, but I've always been interested in, in in the past, in general, and archaeology is just a way to look at the at the things, you know, the artifacts, the things that people made and used, and it's another way of looking at history. So uh, I try to combine that with looking at written documents, which have have their own problems. You know, there are a lot of written documents about the Southeastern Indians and the Creeks in particular were written by people who didn't really know them. They're visitors passing through, and uh, so there are all kinds of errors and and biases in those documents. So the archaeology kind of helps you maybe try to uh, correct some of those problems by looking at a less biased source of information. Yeah. Okay. And, and you say you came uh, to Auburn. Where were you originally from? Uh, well, I'm from Ohio originally, uh, born in Cleveland. <laughs> so uh, long ways from here. So it's funny, there's a lot of archaeologists in the Southeast that are from the Cleveland area. I don't know. I, I guess uh the Rust Belt didn't hold a lot of attraction for us growing up there. <laughs> well, you want to get out of that cold weather. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So your your degrees are from up north? And- uh, well, Missouri, from my University of Missouri, from my undergraduate work. And then I went to uh, North Carolina for a PhD. Okay. Uh, Something drifting south, you know, for most of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, in your PhD, was your dissertation more focused on Creek in general or southeast? Uh, this station was actually totally different. Oh. It was about uh, coastal archaeology, uh, shell middens, the big piles of shell all along the eastern and southern coasts that I still have an interest in and still like to study those as well, but had nothing to do with the Greeks at that time. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you consider yourself more of a historic archaeologist? You were talking about using the historic documents mm-hmm. and the archaeological records to mm-hmm. understand what was going on. Uh, well, that's largely what I've done. Uh, not only the the Creeks, but also everybody that's ever lived in the historic South, uh, 
the colonial period, the French in particular, and, and the American, early American period. So, yeah, I, I have done a lot of historical archaeology, but I've also done some prehistoric as well. It's, uh, I don't like the divide. I think it's a very arbitrary division there between what we call prehistory and history. You know, it's all one continuum. So, so I haven't really paid too much attention to that boundary. Well, that's an interesting concept because usually the archaeologist will call themselves either a historic archaeologist or a prehistoric, I guess, where they do the majority of their work and their mm-hmm. research interest is. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you look at it as, as a whole. Right, and and we have you know people that are living here right on through, the, you know, especially the the native people. So uh, to divide them up is pretty arbitrary. It's really? kind of not their. It's kind of not prehistory to them. It's their no, history. That's right. Yeah, it's a really unfortunate term. Yeah, uh, they use it a lot in Europe. It came from Europe originally, and uh, and there they mean where where writing picks up, then you have history. Well, you know now we have a better appreciation now of oral history being. Uh, a perfectly good source of information of the past. And so uh, just because it's written down doesn't, shouldn't really give it a priority. Well, can you set the scene for how Creeks lived right before like contact period from your archaeological background? Uh, right. Uh, it's uh, uh, everything about archaeology is complicated. So I'll try to <laughs> give a, a, you know, kind of a brief version of it, but um, uh, basically um the uh, people living right before European contact, which is right around 1540 or so in this area, uh, when the Spanish marched through and tried to conquer the, the South, um, uh, the people are, are living in really complicated societies. They're big uh, chiefdoms, we call them today. And so uh, these are the mound builders, the Mississippian mound builders of that era, as archaeologists call them. And uh, so they're living in big towns, they're large populations, they're agriculturalists, they're, they're farmers. And uh, do a lot of hunting to supplement the farming, but they're really tied to particular, really uh, productive lowland fields that flood every year. To, and so it's, an, it's, a, it's a wonderful kind of agriculture they were able to practice at that time. And um, with, with the introduction of the Spanish and all kinds of problems that came with them, uh, those chiefdoms tended to kind of break apart. And there was a lot of population loss at that time. So the the change from pre-contact to post-contact is pretty dramatic in the South. Can you kind of explain some of those dramatic changes? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing we don't know too much about, we're, we're pretty certain, though, that disease was a, a big problem uh, with the arrival of Europeans. Um, and there's debate among specialists in this area about how devastating it was, but we know the population declined dramatically, however, whatever numbers you might come up with. It's a pretty pretty severe uh, period of, of years of waves of epidemics, smallpox, measles, common cold, even influenza. All these things were introduced from Europe and uh, the native peoples of the South were not ever exposed to these. There was no natural immunities uh, present at, at that time. And so many died of things that today would be like measles is still severe, but most people don't die from it. But back yeah. then it was really very, very uh, devastating. Do you think that um, things like this disease and stuff may be what contributed to the separation into towns, smaller towns, like in smaller groups like Creeks and Choctaws, mm-hmm. things like that? Yeah, apparently the big chieftains did break apart about that around 1550 to 1600. 
and uh, disease must have been a big problem. Uh, people fleeing uh, sickness, you know, that sort of thing. Is there anything that you've seen in the, um, I guess, the archaeological record that shows uh, change in the society, the maybe perhaps relationship to each other? Because, you know, imagine the, the Mississippian chiefdoms that with that, the large temple mound complexes, mm-hmm. a, a large population to support it in that immediate vicinity. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards we find smaller villages. You know, right. what type of changes in the thoughts or worldview, or do you have any clue from the archaeology? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, topic. I, I, I'm trying to, I've been struggling with that for several years now about uh, what kind of changes in worldview took place. And uh, the um, the chiefs certainly lost influence during this period. Um, and you could kind of imagine that with new new diseases, that the medical specialists, the cures who had been very effective earlier on with diseases they were well familiar with for thousands of years, and suddenly they're you know, faced with something they can't deal with. There's no cure for smallpox by anybody at that era. So that must have really led to not only a lot of death, but also a lot of and, and loss of people's knowledge as the older people died from these diseases. But also kind of a questioning of whether their previous ways of dealing with the world were, were really effective anymore. And so there might have been changes to trying to experiment with with new things. One thing that uh, that, that apparently happened was this um, kind of change toward the different layers of the world. The this world, the upper world, the lower world, uh, were always really prominent in in southeastern beliefs for thousands of years, apparently. And uh, there's there's a change in the kind of designs that are used, where they move from upper world sun symbols to lower world symbols, right around the time of contact with the Spanish, and suggests that they're they're really trying to deal with the the uh, kind of hidden forces that cause diseases that are coming from the lower world. So it, you know we don't know. Obviously, don't know a lot about it because you don't have people interested enough to write it down at the time. But but we see it in the archaeology and the changes in, in, in designs. Right. You know, because, you know, archaeologists deals with the material items left behind, which is remnants of things used and uh, had some function in it. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that interpret from there yeah. uh, based upon what is perceived uses of that item today. And, right. you know, when you were talking about it, you know, I think the, uh, kind of believe that the mental constructs, the things, the rules that people had to live with, mm-hmm. those remained, mm-hmm. those rules remained and, and helped drive them. And I'm wondering if what you said, you know, loss of, of skills, mm-hmm. but one of the things that we found with the recent work on a pandemic display is that some of the uh, the practices to deal with those illness, which was separation, mm-hmm. isolation, which was may not have even been prominent within the European groups that was suffering from smallpox, right. If that carried on, instead of having the large population gathering that would be susceptible to a a spirit or whatever was causing, perceived as causing Mm -hmm. that problem, 
instead of having it affect a large population if they pull apart, move into smaller settlements, mm-hmm. then that's larger people or number of people are going to be able to survive. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. The, uh, you know, the artifacts we have to deal with are, are largely uh, the most mundane of items, the things we use daily, and, and that tr- kind of translates pretty much into just pieces of pottery. <laughs> These mm-hmm. are the most common things we find. And uh, fortunately, although archaeologists for some reason didn't realize this for many years, was that the, the designs on the pottery are not, we, we, we initially thought maybe they were like related to kinship groups. But now it looks like it's a much larger level of of uh, commonality between people. It's this, these big belief systems. You know, it's the, the concepts of the different layers of the world are, are all on the pottery. And so you have a kind of an insight into the religion and beliefs of people thousands of years ago that we didn't really know we had until recently. So, we, duh. <laughs> it seems obvious now. Can we take a step back of when you were talking mm-hmm. about kinship group and mm-hmm. kind of explain why that wasn't believed to like these pottery pieces would have traced back to different yeah. kinship groups. Yeah. Well, when archaeologists have looked at the, all the pottery from a single town, from kind of a single group of related peoples, they found kind of the same divisions of designs. There's you know, maybe half a dozen and they sort out, you know, through time and they're, they're very consistent. You get the same variety through many years and from place to place. And so we thought maybe they were like uh, clan uh, symbols. And we, but we still don't really know quite how it worked, how the, how the symbols relate to individual families or clans. But we do know that when you take a look at, a, at an even tinier view, you move down from the town level down to a single home, a single house, you see the same variety. And so, you know, we know that within a household, uh, the women, uh, women's clan were the, were the ho- household owners. And, so, and they're also the makers of the pottery. And so if they're all from the same clan or from, even from the same natural lineage and they're still making the same six or seven different kinds of pottery, then it can't really be related strictly to kinship. There's something else going on. Does it seem like it was like these designs were passed passed through towns? Like this mm-hmm. one, this town may come up with one design and it's migrated to another town because they may have took on the liking to that design? Yeah, it's possible. I, I I don't think we know enough to really, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, we, we do know that because women are the potters and they're, the, the daughters uh, usually live near the mother. And so you have this kind of uh, parts of town that are lots of related women and are all making pottery that they certainly would all be learning from each other and passing mm-hmm. down the information from one, one generation to the next. So there's a lot of continuity there. We don't really know how it then translates to the bigger picture um, later on with, during the 19th century when the Greeks are politically unified. Everybody's making the same kinds of pottery. It's kind of amazing how it moved from town level styles to nation, national level styles. And uh, so there's many things we don't know, but it, it all has to do with this individual passing down their information. Somehow it was translated to a big, bigger level of society. Maybe come into trade and things. Yeah. Have these things yeah, yeah. Too, maybe. Yeah, or even showing how, like, nomadic the Creek people were during this time period. Mm-hmm. They didn't move around. But then you, you compare them to the, the Choctaws making yeah. pottery at the same time, and it's totally different. You know, there's a big d- division there. Okay. And so I know we briefly talked about the Spanish coming into America, mm-hmm. but there was many different European countries that had involvement within the Southeast. Mm-hmm. And what were those relationships like with the Creek people? 
Yeah, it gets really complicated in the colonial period. Uh, the, the Spanish, you know, they marched through in 1540 and, and DeSoto dies and that all kind of falls apart. And so uh, they, the Spanish recruits and they set up some missions in, in the town of St. Augustine all in Florida. And so they're there throughout the whole colonial period, right on the fr- southern fringe of the of Creek country. But then the French uh, and English both move into the region trying to compete with the, the Spanish. And so the French set up Fort Toulouse right in the center of, of the Alabama portion of the Creek Nation. Uh, the English set up all kinds of trading houses over on the eastern side of the Creek Nation. So they're all there and are all competing for attention with the Creek, trader, uh, the Creek traders themselves and deer hunters. So you have all kinds of complicated interactions, including lots of intermarriage, particularly between the British and French traders and, uh, and the Creek people. So they're all closely intertwined for about 100 years there. Is there any evidence on like favorite trading partners for the Creeks? I mean, was it Spanish traders, English traders? Well, early on, it's uh, this is really the only source of um, European goods is the Spanish in Florida. Don't quite know how it worked. It may have been kind of down the line trading where one person trades with a Spaniard and then they pass along trading internally within the Creek country. That's possibly how it worked. But But then when the French and British arrive with trading posts right in the Creek country. Then the ones who are favored are the ones who are intermarried with uh, with the Creeks okay. uh, because they have kin relationships they need to maintain. And there's political and economic advantage to marrying a trader. But do you, do you see anything in the archaeological record that, of any changes, say, in the town styles, maybe distribution of houses or where houses are located in association with one of the another and hmm. settlement patterns are... well yeah there are a lot of changes through time um, one big change that seems to occur after the Spanish arrive and it, I don't think it has anything to do with them really but it's a big change in the way towns are are laid out and the kind of houses that the Creeks had um, before contact the uh, the houses were largely um, kind of set down in the ground we call them semi-subterranean they're Basically, you dig out a foot of soil and uh, and then put put posts up and build within that pit, and then uh, it has usually a very substantial roof. And these are we sometimes we call them earth lodges. Uh, and that was a very common early style of house, very well insulated in the summer. In particular, it's a lot cooler in the summer in those kind of houses. And then, of course, if there is a severe winter, you're you're warm. And I mean, it's a really great kind of house. We should be doing that today, uh, <laughs> but the uh, but there's a big shift, um, and uh, those disappear sometime around 1715 or so, uh, you know, well after contact. And we don't quite know why, but at, after that point, this, this other style of house, the above ground rectangular buildings take over, and uh, the other ones disappear. So there are these changes. We don't quite understand what else going on, but they are pretty major in terms of how the towns would have looked and how people interacted with each other in town. Okay. How about a change in proximity? Were they, they moving further from each other, or were the houses still fairly close together? Yeah, early on, they were still pretty nucleated. You know, that's how we refer to them. Pretty densely packed communities, maybe for defense, because there was a lot of raiding going on. Uh, for slaves, particularly early on in the South, and so, uh, but but at some point that does change, and you know, by 
the late 1800s, early 1800s, you get dispersal of people. Uh, and that may have something to do with the introduction of cattle and other kinds of, uh, of kind of European-introduced um, things going on with farming. Um, cows and cornfields don't mix well if you don't have fences. And so uh, people who are trying to raise cattle generally kind of drifted away from the main towns. Uh, so there is a kind of gradual dispersal through time. Until by 1830, you know, by the time of removal, people are largely, you know, individual little farms kind of scattered out throughout the countryside. Uh, yeah, that's what I was wondering is as they changed their economy, um, hunting and subsistence to mm -hmm. more domesticated animals and mm -hmm. seeing a need for a larger area of land around mm -hmm. the house. Right. First. Right. Yeah, the, the rise in the appearance of cattle really uh, kind of coincides with the decline in deer hunting. And there's been a lot of debate among, well, maybe me against everybody else because I, <laughs> about what's, what that means. Uh, a lot of people have thought for years that the deer uh, population was decimated by overhunting. And uh, I don't really see any particular evidence to that uh, in the in the bones of the of the deer, they're still pretty common, actually, when you start getting cattle introduced. But at some point, it's really an abrupt change. They just drop it. And I think it has more to do with, the, you know, the reason people were hunting deer was to get the hides to sell to the Europeans who needed lots of leather back in Europe. And so it was this huge, you know, hundreds of thousands of deer hides every year leaving the south for Europe. And uh, sometime around uh, late 1700s, the market in Europe changes, and so they don't—they they actually shift over to cattle uh, hides instead of deer hides. And you know, I'm not sure what all that was about, but it did change the economics of things going on here in the South. So the deer hides were weren't worth as much as they were previous. Right, they'd been using them for things like gloves, really fine gloves, and book binding, and all kinds of topics that you know we wouldn't even think of today for necessarily for leather use but uh, they found ways to split cow hides into really thin things that, that kind of replicated the size of a deer skin so i think maybe that's really all it amounted to okay. it had big impact over here so i guess you know again if you look at it as purely economic if the deer skins lose their value mm -hmm. and you can get equal or better value with with a cow, right? right. Then that would be a makes sense. A shift. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Into that uh, that type of economy, mm -hmm. because even if a cow, because we've seen maybe this is getting a little bit ahead of things, but seemed to be a, a market for cattle in Pensacola, right? right. And that seemed to be market for cattle on the hoof. Mm -hmm. So you could take cattle to Pensacola, sell the meat and the hide, right. and you get double your value at least, or increase your value mm -hmm. for one trip down there. Yeah. Yeah, Alexander McGillivray and his, his extended family were right in the forefront of that movement to supply uh, cattle to Pensacola and also Mobile. And the, we've dug a plantation or two down in the Mobile area where one in particular, Dog River, we found a British period, so like 1770s era, uh, tanning vat for making, you know, for processing leather from cow, cow hides. So uh, those cow hides may well be coming from the Creek country at that time. 
And of course, uh, with all the ships coming into Pensacola Mobile, they always need supplies of meat and all sorts of things. So great market for them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So speaking of the, with the trade, did the Creeks have a favor trading partner? Like, was it like bigger trading companies? Cause we see the, the introduction of these bigger trading companies, or did they like these small European trading companies? Well, I, I you know, there's probably a number of things going on there. Um, the independent traders were largely unregulated for a long time throughout the 18th century. The, in fact, that's one of the big causes of the Yamasee War in 1715, where the traders are routinely cheating the Yamasee people who were, were part of the Creek uh, Confederacy at the time. And so, uh, you know, there there was always that problem with individuals not having any real controls over them, bringing in liquor into the Indian country and all kinds of problems. So so the big companies, uh, I think, may, were a way to try to kind of rein in the rogue traders. So that may be one reason. And, and also they had um, economic advantages from Europe. So I don't know, there's it's all kinds of complex reasons probably why the big companies took over. Uh, but the Americans were able to compete with that during that early, you know, Revolutionary War era and afterwards the uh, Americans started companies as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think maybe that was those were the reasons why they, the small traders kind of disappeared yeah. at some point. Back up a little bit, you know, the French, you know, established Fort Toulouse, mm-hmm. I'd say, in, in central part of Alabama. How influential were the French on the, the Creek population, or do we have any idea? Right. Uh, well, I think they're really important. They, they they never amounted to very many in terms of numbers. You know, there's 20 or 30 French soldiers and officers and traders there at Fort Salouse, which is kind of just north of Montgomery today. And they, they mainly dealt with the Alabama people, the Coasadis and Alabamas who were in that vicinity. And the rest of the Creeks to the east um, mostly had British traders. But what what a number of Creek leaders discovered right around 1715 is when this kind of really took hold was the idea that if you have French in one area of the Creek country and British in the other, and then Span- the Spaniards down in Florida, uh, that you, if, if one trader mistreats you like they were doing during the Amnesty War, you go to the other side, you go over to the French for a while and trade with them, or you can ask particular for particular goods, you can get better guns from the British, but you can get better cloth from the French and so on. So, you you are able to kind of as as our historians have said you can play them off once one against the other and get advantage economic but also political advantages and so uh, from that point forward the Creek leadership really consciously maintains this balance of power between the three European influences in the area and it was to their great advantage they were able to never side with one and be cheated exclusively by the British and you could always go around and shop around a bit. The Choctaws tried that same thing, and the French uh, resisted it because they knew if they allowed the British into the Choctaw country, they would lose all kinds of influence over the Choctaws. And so the Creeks were, were right, you know, strategically placed in the middle of the southeast and could do this. They could do it better than anybody because they had access to all three powers. Can you actually dive a little bit deeper into that political power mm-hmm. that they kind of had during mm-hmm. that time and how like each country that was involved in this – influence the Creeks and how mm-hmm. they could apply for each other? Okay. The uh, the Creek leaders, it's just from Brims onwards and from the early 1700s onwards, uh, all the way through McGillivray, really, um, they all were able to, 
to work out special deals themselves with all the different powers in the area. And so, like, for example, when Alexander McGillivray goes to New York in 1790 to meet with President Washington, sign the first treaty between the South Asian Indians and, and the U.S. They have a regular treaty, but then he also has a side secret treaty. <laughs> so he gets all kinds of payments and things that, uh, he, for example, his many of his nephews went off to school in the East uh, to get educated as uh, as Americans, as well as uh, their, you know, their, their original training as, as Creek leaders. And so there's all kinds of things politically that were happening behind the scenes because of these different options that the Creeks had, had maintained between the Spanish, French, British, and then eventually the Americans. Following the Revolutionary War, the United States come into play. How did the United States and them coming into play affect the way Creeks were living at, at that mm-hmm. time? Uh, well, you know, it kind of was similar to what had happened before. The French were kind of out of the picture after that point. But the uh, Spanish still hold, held everything west of the, of the Mississippi River, and they held Florida. Mm-hmm. And so the Creeks were again able to play off the Americans and the Spanish, and so they could kind of maintain that uh, economic advantage. When you look at the artifacts in the Creek towns from that period after the Revolution, that's when the most silver is found. It's, it, it looks like they're quite wealthy. The Creeks are quite wealthy at that time. Um, so all kinds of silver ornaments, big brass and silver plates they wore on their chests and earrings, all sorts of things are, are appear at that time in great numbers. And so they seem to do quite well, uh, but then eventually the Spanish power kind of disintegrates. The whole Spanish empire kind of falls apart to a large extent around 1800. And, and so um, the Americans become dominant. And from that point on, onwards, you can see archaeologically how really impoverished many of the Creek people became at that point. The, the leaders are still doing okay. They're pulling in all the all the extra benefits of being leaders. But uh, but most people become very poor at that point. And that probably actually contributes to the Creek War of 1813. Just a general discontent with the way things are going down at the household level. You know, you can see it really. It's very quite a, quite a dramatic change. Well, yeah, actually, our next episode is going to focus primarily on the Creek War of 1812. Okay. And so what were some of those triggering factors that built tension within the Creek Nation and caused the civil war between the Creek Nation? Yeah. Well, there's all sorts of problems in the South <laughs> at that time. One of the things I've worked on a little bit is the uh, origins of the old Federal Road, the first wagon road into the South uh, that crossed right through the middle of the Creek uh, Creek Nation. And uh, the, the Creeks fought that for years. They, there's an 1805 treaty with uh, each south, southern tribe that uh, each of the tribes agreed that the U.S. could build a road through their country. And so the Creeks held off for as long as they could. They really objected very strongly to this. Uh, there was actually an effort in, 18, uh, I think, 1811 for the U.S. Army to start building a road. They just weren't going to wait any longer. And the Creeks stopped them. They came out, several hundred warriors came out and stopped the the uh, U.S. military party and escorted them out of the country. But then they had, the politicians got involved and they kind of smoothed that over. So the following year, the Federal Road was built. And it, as the Creeks knew, uh, it brought in all kinds of problems. The settlers not only were passing through to go to New Orleans, but they also stopped by and were selling whiskey and doing all kinds of illegal trading. Prostitution appears along the Federal Road, all kinds of problems internally along there. And that was just kind of one example of the kinds of pressures the Creeks were under during this period. They're constant pressures to sell them more land uh, to the Americans. 
and also to try to, there was this effort by the Americans called the Plan of Civilization, which was supposed to transform Creek people into American yeoman farmers. It was a bizarre kind of system of forced assimilation that the Americans tried to impose on the Creeks. And all that stuff just really, you know, was not popular at all among the Creek Nation. Most of them were not benefiting by any of that kind of thing and um, becoming poorer and poorer in the meantime. So, and then amongst all that, of course, as you have this general kind of disintegration of values of morals throughout the the area, uh, there's a religious revival that goes on among many of the Southeastern Indians at that time. And it's a very militaristic, anti-American religious movement. So those things all were just kind of, it's a big powder keg waiting to explode by 1813. Now, this is the first I've ever heard of this federal road. Where Mm -hmm. actually, like today, would this be located? Yeah. Well, it ran from Milledgeville, Georgia, which was the capital at the time. It's kind of west central Georgia. And head straight west, pretty much across the river, uh, the Chattahoochee River, right around Columbus, that area. And then headed kind of over toward where Montgomery is today. And then it headed to the southwest, and it basically follows I-65 today. Okay. It kind of weaves around so, I-65. Yeah, right in the middle of Creek Country. Right, right through the middle of it, and uh, right down through here. You know, Jack Springs Road is part of the federal road. So uh, uh-huh. we have uh, you know some really close connections with it in this yeah. area. Yeah, I think there was one of the porch descendants had a homestead on the oh, Federal Railroad. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Samuel Moniak was one of the more famous occupants of the Federal yeah. Road. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah Samanak, and he was, but all of it, most of his stuff was a little further north. Right. He still had some influence down here in the southwest, mm-hmm. some sort of project. Huh. When you talked about the, the people that, that uh, poor conditions. Are mm-hmm. we talking about, you know, when we hear the people were in bad bad shape or were they lack of food resources, lack of available goods, or what was the the difference? Right. The, uh, the, the main thing is that we see archaeologically is um, kind of a decline in in trade goods, I think what happens is when the hunting dies out as a viable way to make a living, um, not everybody could shift over to kind of plantation-style farming. You know, you uh, the, the the wealthiest creeks who who could purchase slaves essentially were the ones who could fit in best in the Southern American economy at that time. And so, if you didn't own another person to to help work your fields, if you couldn't afford cattle, you know, if you couldn't necessarily acquire good land as the towns dispersed. Some people ended up in the best farmlands, but others ended up in the kind of in the pine piney woods. And so you can't really grow corn very well there. So all kinds of economic reasons kind of converged, I think. So so what happens is they're, they're not able to keep trading for the manufactured goods from Europe or from the U.S. Uh, that were really common beforehand. And so it's just meant a really a whole change in their kind of personal household economies. Uh, so I don't know if they necessarily felt that they were poorer. They certainly couldn't buy as much as they had before. But it kind of translated in general to uh, uh, actually a shift in, in architecture occurs at that time as well. Uh, shifting to log cabins from the more traditional kind of elongated rectangular, rectangular matrilineage houses. You end up with little individual cabins. 
which must have kind of undermined the matrilineage lineage to some extent because you're no longer in direct view of, of the elder women. You're off in your own little family unit. So, mm-hmm. so a lot of changes at that time that looked like they kind of could have been really pretty dramatic. So the households changed to some degree from, say, an extended family living mm-hmm. in one location and one house to right. individual nuclear families, nuclear yeah. family, mm-hmm. which would have been a disruption in some some of the education culturation yeah. process. Right. Uh, I kind of wonder too if that was like a pinpoint from like moving from matrilineal society to these. To the patrilineal society that we see today, that's that was within. more influence on yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good have because you know again we see the you know the intermarriage continuing on, right? And with the matrilineal extended family, you know the influence and the acculturation of the individual, the cultural knowledge learning, right would have been influenced by the, the mother's family. If you're into that more nucleated settlement where you've got the husband, wife, and children, then mm-hmm. the father would, who may not be Cree, right. would have some more more influence yeah. than previous. Right. He may not, and he's not going to know, if he's not Creek, he's not going to know the Creek ways to teach them, so they're going to go that bit. More patrilineal way. Yeah, I think the mother would probably, you know, as we see today, even with mother's influence, would influence in the, uh, the cultural learning quite a bit, mm-hmm. would still have probably more influence on the child than the parent, but the child is beginning to learn some things. Yeah. That's why we see, you know, Creeks that are fluent in English and mm-hmm. Creek. Mm-hmm. Because they're learning English from their father. Right, right. Very interesting the way it it shifted a little bit. Yeah. That's a large shift from contact to right at the Creek War, 1812. That was a big change Mm -hmm. that they did. Well, that was one of the things, too, when we talked about the um, militaristic influence coming into Creek or the Creeks becoming more militant against anti-whites. Mm-hmm. See that in other culture groups, the ghost deaths mm-hmm. in the Southwest, mm-hmm. a similar type philosophy of the Indians uniting at one point and driving the whites away. Right. You know, it was a perhaps similar type of cultural influence pushing them Mm-hmm. to adopt that thinking. Yeah. Yeah, we see that at, in the, at Fort Mims, for example, during the Creek War, when there are Creeks inside Fort Mims and Creeks attacking Fort Mims, you know, and so you have this division in the in the society. And uh, the, uh, the Red Sticks, uh, the Red Stick Creeks who are attacking the fort, target the, the, the Creek women and children for taking captive, kind of retrieving them from their white husbands mm-hmm. uh, because they've, They've, they've turned against their own society. So, yeah, there's there's a lot going on at that period. We should reach the end. Is there anything we I want to backtrack so. to? feel that we covered a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because, you know, it, it's 
This has been a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, particularly to see how the archaeological record uh, demonstrated how these changes was taking place, mm-hmm. changing in the uh, changes of the household and how right. they were constructed, right. the changes of where they're located, population density changes, mm-hmm. and certainly the amount of goods coming into the country that's, you know, mm-hmm. the material goods. So it's, right. it's been great to hear all about that. Yeah, I think with this episode, we definitely got to hear and see the physical changes from the way the creeks live to now the more going into a more of an Americanized way of living. And like, you know, we're about to get into the Creek War, so I think that's going to be the biggest tension we see in the next episode. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Anything? Well, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, this is, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is all fascinating uh, material. I, I, I love to study this era of history and uh, trying to see it from as many perspectives as possible. You know, it's... Uh, it's easy to get caught up in like Anglophiles love to kind of promote the English view of things. And there's been plenty written about from the American point of view. And uh, I think a balance would be really nice to achieve someday here where we kind of treat everybody with equal respect and some attempted understanding. There are different points of view. Well, I appreciate that because that's certainly one of the things that we're striving through to accomplish is to, bring in the creek, the Indian perspective, as you mentioned, and a lot of the the writings, particularly what we see historic, they're all from that European point of view, and sometimes that's accepted as the way it is whenever it really isn't. It's right. just that person's interpretation right. based upon their cultural knowledge and their thoughts and beliefs of what's best. Right, right. And, and to see these different and strange things take place and it's just doesn't fit within their thinking. No, (laughs) no, plenty of room for improvement. (laughs) Right. So hopefully that's one of the things we can do with with this department. Yeah. Very good. And again, thank you. Appreciate you you. taking time and your retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to Porch Stories. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Tune in next week to learn more about the history of Porch Banda Creek in